Well, when you support the Annie Armstrong Easter offering, and today is the last Sunday that we're receiving that, well, we'll continue to take it, but that we're focusing on that. Um, you are supporting missionaries like that who are planting churches and ministering to folks all over our country, but there you see a special emphasis on college towns, and uh, obviously we know we've got one of the largest universities in the nation here in our area, and uh, and. Those campuses are so important to reach. And so there are church planters uh, that are going into campuses like that, cities like that all over our nation, um, planting churches and sharing the gospel. And so when you give to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering, uh, through our offering, whether online or in this service, you're supporting missionaries like that. That's one of the things that goes towards. And at the same time, when you just give through our normal uh, general budget, a portion of that's going to support efforts like that as well. So thank you for, for uh, participating in that. Well, we're starting a new series today, and before we get into it, I'm going to go ahead and explain. Many of you are looking at me and thinking, what happened to that guy this week? And uh, I'll just say, I've got kids, and uh, I've got three kids, and uh, we like to wrestle from time to time, and this time they won. And so uh, they fight dirty, and um, the six-year-old and the four-year-old teamed up on me, and uh, my sweet little four-year-old girl accidentally headbutted me um, in the face. And so, um, but anyway, so that's why I have the nice shiner this morning. And uh, it looks a lot better today than it did a couple of days ago. And uh, let me be quick to say, it wasn't my four-year-old's fault. It was my six-year-old's fault. So, let's leave it at that. But we're starting a new series this morning called, What, uh, what Does the Bible Say About Fill-in-the-Blank? And this series is rooted in... Um, the Easter survey we did just several weeks ago at Easter where we, we surveyed everybody that attended either one of our services and said, what are some things that you want to know more about what the Bible says? And so we're going to be addressing some of those topics in this series um, over the next few weeks. And today we're going to be addressing a, top, a topic that tied for first place. We had two that tied for first place. Um, and we're actually going to spend three weeks on those two categories. And uh, today that tied for first place topic is spiritual Warfare. What does the Bible say about spiritual warfare? Apparently, you guys want to know. So, if you don't like the topic today, you should have voted. Okay, we let you vote on these, and uh, the ones of you that, that supported it, this is your, this is your, many of your, your topic, right? And so, spiritual warfare. What can we say about spiritual warfare? First of all, I think the most important thing we can say about it is that it is real. <laughs> um, it, it's a real thing that's actually taking place. Um, as we're getting ready to, to open the Bible this morning, it's taking place. As you were singing and worshiping. This morning, it's taking place. When your alarm clock goes off on Monday morning, but not just Monday morning, on Saturday morning, it's taking place. When you, when you go to work, it's taking place. When you gather around the dinner table with family and friends, it's taking place. It is always happening. Just because something is unseen does not make it unreal. And ignoring something that's unseen does not make it go away. An invisible enemy is a dangerous enemy. And an enemy that is powerful but yet ignored is all the more dangerous. So if all of a sudden this morning in this room, the oxygen began to leave the place, scary, freaky thought, right? At first, we wouldn't really, everything would look the same. We wouldn't even really realize what's going on if it just slowly began to leak out of the room. But at some point, we would begin to see the effects, right? When our neighbors started passing out or we start passing out, and ultimately, it would take us out. But the fact that we couldn't tell and we didn't see it happening and we didn't notice it at first wouldn't make it any less real. And that's the way it works with spiritual warfare. We don't see everything that's going on around us in the spiritual realm. But that doesn't mean it's not real. And that doesn't mean it's not taking place. And that doesn't mean that something can't happen. That doesn't mean there's not something coming against you or someone coming against you that has it out for you. 
there is a real war being waged. And the Bible tells us that Jesus, Jesus actually tells us in John 10, that he came that we may have life and have it more abundantly. But he says the thief came to steal, kill, and destroy. And that's ultimately what Satan wants to do. He wants to steal from us. He wants to kill us. He wants to destroy our lives. But I believe that we can, that God's children can spiritually thrive even in the midst of spiritual warfare. So that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. And I believe the best passage in all of the Bible to talk about this topic from is Ephesians chapter 6. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. We're going to look at some other verses in a little bit, but we're going to zero in first on these first four verses here. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. It's on the screen for you. If you don't have the scriptures, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Here's what it says. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, he says, finally, this is the, the end of Ephesians. He says, finally, summing it all... Let me stress this, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, stand firm. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful this morning uh, for this text of Scripture uh, that reveals to us so much about the unseen world around us. And we pray this morning as we study from Ephesians 6 and some other passages that your Holy Spirit would teach us this morning and help us to, as your text says, to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So speak to our hearts this morning, encourage us, point us to Jesus and the deeper rest in him. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, the book of Ephesians here, this great book, uh, is written by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, is a book that kind of displays, much like Romans that we've been studying here, displays the power of the gospel. It explains, Ephesians does, the new life that we get in Christ. It, It tells us in Ephesians 2, we were dead in our sins, but through faith in Christ, we're made alive in Christ. And so, all about that new life and and walking in that new life, but it also explains the transformation that happens in that that Christ, through Christ, through faith in Christ, he creates a new body, a new people called the church, and that the dividing wall, the big emphasis in Ephesians, of hostility between Jew and Gentile has been torn down. They've been brought into one body, and that was a big deal to say in the first century, uh, first century AD. And at the same time, that tells us, man, that, that points to all kinds of racial things and all that about in Christ, that we're all united through faith in him, one people right? One people united in Christ. So much to say there. But then Ephesians gets, begins to unpack how we live in light of all these truths. And so when you get over in Ephesians 4 and 5 and 6, Paul begins to talk about being an imitator of God and, and walking in love. Just as you're loved by God and he loves people, you're supposed to love people. And then he gets into how the family unit's supposed to work. And how husbands and wives relate to one another and with the kids and what your work, you, you, you name it. He gets into all the kind of the daily things and society things for that time, how all that plays out. And then when he gets at the end of the book here, he says, now finally, and he zooms in on spiritual warfare. Because in this warfare, all these other things, our families, living out our faith, how we, how we love God and love people, man, 
those kind of things are at stake in this spiritual battle. Your marriage, your marriage is affected by spiritual warfare. Your relationship with your neighbors is affected. Your parenting is affected. Your workplace is affected. Your walk with God can be affected by spiritual warfare. Listen, invisible does not mean imaginary. That's the theology of the atheist, not the Christian, right? Just because something's invisible, just because I can't see it, doesn't mean it's, it's not happening. And Paul addresses this last because it's affecting everything. It's so important. And as I was thinking about this text this week, a text that I haven't dealt with in five years or so, I got to looking at this text and I thought, wow, what is the tension in the text for us? You know, a good thing to do sometimes is to read a text and say, what is it about this text that I don't want to believe? Or what is it about this text that we may struggle with? And, and what popped in my head was, I think the tension here is this, that we, many of us in this room would tend to think this when we read this. Who, me? Like, why would the devil and demons be warring against me? Like, I, am I really a big threat, right? I like to sleep in and watch Netflix. I don't really think that, that, that that's like, I don't really, is, is I, am I really on the devil's like hot list here, hit list, whatever? We're tempted to think, sure, Paul, of course you needed to be strong in the Lord. Of course you're going to say this. Of course you're going to talk about spiritual. You're an apostle. You're writing scriptures. I'm sure, man, the devil's an all-out attack against Paul. But I can't find my car keys half the time. I don't think I'm a real threat. I'm just trying to get through my day. And to me, that's the tension many of us face when we read a passage like this. It just kind of, we think maybe is foreign to us in our experience. But on the other extreme of that, there might be a few of us in this room that get on the other extreme. And you read a passage like this and you blame everything on the devil. Can't find my keys this morning. Stupid devil, Right? Sound wasn't working right this morning. Man, we're blank. It must, you know, it must be the devil, right? Whatever, and we begin to look and point everything at the devil. Some people want to do that. We give him more credit than he's due. But I think most of us in this room are in that who me category. And what you need to understand this morning is Satan hates you and wants to destroy you for one simple reason if you're a child of God this morning. That is this you're a child of God. <laughs> And he wants to, he hates and wants to destroy everybody for one simple reason. We're made in God's image and are loved by our creator. That's, that's all he needs. He hates God, right? So he hates anything that represents God. And people are the one part of God's creation that are made to reflect and to image their creator. That are made to, in the image of God. And so he hates people. And he, and he hates the bride of Christ. He hates the church. He hates those that have placed their faith in Jesus. Think about it. When did Satan begin waging spiritual warfare against God's children? The very beginning, right? I mean, our Bibles, when we open them and read the first three chapters, spiritual warfare is in the first three chapters. The very first two people that God creates, Satan like possesses a snake and begins to tempt them, right? He goes after them from the very beginning. So friends, we need to sober up and be ready. This war is real. You are in it. And it's effect, it affects all of our lives. But the believer in Christ Jesus can thrive spiritually in the midst of spiritual warfare. So I want to share with you from this text this morning four principles to help get our head and heart around this so that we can thrive spiritually in the midst of a very real spiritual war. Okay, so four principles. Number one, my strength in spiritual warfare must come from the Lord. That's the first thing you need to know. My strength in spiritual warfare must come from the Lord. Verse 10, finally, 
Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, why would Paul say be strong in the Lord? Because our strength, our natural strength, is not adequate nor enough for this battle. The picture here is one of dependency. We, we are to rely on someone else, on the Lord for strength because he says he is strong. One scholar noted how our strength comes from the inherent strength of the Lord. But we need to get strength from someone who is just naturally strong. He says, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. The Lord's not looking anywhere for strength. He's he just got it. It's natural to him. Infinite supply. And this is kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around because when we think of strength, we think of we have, we have to build strength. We have to receive strength. So if we want to get physically stronger, what do we do? You eat better, you work out, you rest better, you go through all these things, right, so that you can physically get stronger. We, we do things to get stronger. When I was a teenager, I drank all the shakes. I did all the working out just so I could try to swing a baseball bat harder. That's all I cared about in terms of that. So, I would, man, I was working hard to try to do that because I needed to get stronger. But the Lord has inherent, already there, natural to his character, strength. And so our strength, he says, needs to come from his mind. See, the way we build our strength is to become more dependent on his inherent strength. So imagine if instead of physically having to lift weights and exercise to get physically stronger, you could just say, you know what? I'm going to rely on the strength of this professional athlete, this Olympian over here, and I'm going to be strong. But, hey, where does all your physical strength come from? Well, in the swimming pool, it comes from Michael Phelps. Um, when, when I play baseball over here, it comes from this guy. When I play football, it, you know, and when I run, it's this track star over here, and we could just rely on That would be great, right? None of us would ever go to the gym anymore. But spiritually, that's how it happens. Our spiritual strength is supposed to come from outside of us through reliance and dependency, he says, upon the Lord. And the point is this, the secret in spiritual warfare is not self-confidence, and it's not something that we can work up or produce. It's that we need a power, a strength that does not come from ourselves. We need God's help because the enemy that we face is a powerful enemy. The war that you face is an intense war. We need Jesus. We need the Lord's strength. That brings us to our second big idea. My enemy in spiritual warfare is Satan and demons, not my neighbor. My enemy in spiritual warfare is Satan and demons, not my neighbor. He says that we need to be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 11 there, introducing us to our enemy. And then verse 12 introduces us, we'll read it again here in a minute, to his team of helpers. Now, this has been the enemy of God's people since the beginning. As we said earlier, the devil has been scheming against God's people since the Garden of Eden. So let's be clear about a few things about the devil. First of all, let's be clear about what he is not. He is not omniscient. He is not omnipresent. And he is not omnipotent. Say that another way. He does not know everything. He is not in every place at once. And he is not all-powerful. Those are attributes that you can only ascribe to God, only ascribe to deity. So Satan is not those things. He is, he is an angel that rebelled against God. The Bible teaches that he was literally kicked out of heaven when he rebelled against God because he sought to be God and to be in the place of God. And by the way, that never works out well for anybody but God. Okay? It doesn't work out well for anybody else. So he's this rebellious angel that has, you know, we use the term fallen angel, whatever, um, that is in rebellion against God. In the Bible, we see Satan tempting the first people. Many years, and we see them fall into sin and choose to, to run away from God and run towards sin. And many years later, 
Jesus comes on the scene, right? The word becomes flesh and walks among us. And, and Jesus is tempted in the desert before he begins his earthly ministry. Satan comes and tempts Jesus. But whereas Adam and Eve fell for the temptation, Jesus, the truer, the better, the second Adam, he resists the temptation, right? Because Jesus is greater and more powerful than Satan. And to this day, Satan seeks to tempt and to destroy God's people. He is at work in the world. 1 Peter 5.8, the apostle Peter writes that we need to be sober-minded, right? Clear-headed, thinking correctly. We need clarity of thought spiritually and in every way. And he says, be watchful. You need to be on the lookout. Here's why. Your adversary or your enemy, right? The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He says, he's out looking to devour and he's hungry. Here in our text this morning, Paul says we've got to stand against his schemes. The Greek word there for schemes conveys the idea of craftiness and deception. He's a deceptive schemer. He is plotting and manipulating to try to get his way in our lives. In the Bible, Satan is referred to as a liar and a murderer. In Revelation 12, 9, he's referred to as the deceiver of the whole world. John tells us in John 8, 44, that, or Jesus says, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. The first lie told to humanity was told by Satan. He said, you shall not surely die. Satan's scheming to devour your life this morning. He lies and he kills and he lies to kill. And he has help. Paul tells us in verse 12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. He says, instead we wrestle against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over the present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul's saying our, our battle is not with flesh and blood. It's not with skin. It's not with other human beings. It's with these rulers, these authorities, these cosmic powers this, in this present darkness, these spiritual forces. He, He's referring to demonic forces, okay? And this conveys an organized, powerful effort working against God's people. So I, I don't know about all this. This kind of weirds me out. What, what, listen, we can look around our world and we get that evil's in the world. Nobody can test that. What God's word is telling you is there's an organized effort behind that. Here's the point. This organized effort, effort is to deceive you, to trick you, to trap you and to kill you. You are being hunted. And it's an organized, schematic effort. Someone once said the devil works through both extraordinary and ordinary methods. I wish I could remember for sure where I heard that from so I could give them credit. But it's a great thought. It, the devil works through extraordinary and ordinary me methods. Think about it this way. Sure, we see in the Bible demonized people, right? Extraordinary. The, the first sin... Genesis chapter 3 involved a talking snake. Extraordinary. But that sin was had over a piece of fruit. Ordinary. <laughs> they, they, this basically stopped trusting God. In Ephesus that Paul wrote this to, the Bible tells us in the book of Acts, when these people first came to Christ and this church began, many of them were, were involved in magic arts, demonic activity, extraordinary weird stuff. But over in Revelation, when they get away from the Lord and Jesus sends them a letter, the problem is they fell from their first love. Ordinary. 
And so Satan is happy to destroy your life through extraordinary or ordinary ways. Many years ago when I was um, in college, I accompanied a friend to a preacher's conference that was in New Orleans. And I grew up in a small town. I'd never been to New Orleans. I'd not even been to that many large cities, especially other than when I was a small child. And so it's me and this, this friend that was a few years older than me. We went to this preacher's conference and we decided while we were there, we would go out in the French Quarter and around Jackson Square, if you know New Orleans well. And we would go out at night and we would do some uh, 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 street evangelism. And I remember we decided we would go up to like the tarot card readers and the fortune tellers. And I just remember being completely weirded out by all that. It was just a weird place, right? Met all kinds of people that were probably on drugs and everything else in the world. And man, you're just kind of, you're like, man, it, it, just, it just feels demonic here, right? It just, you just, and I don't even know if that's the correct way to say it. It just, it just feels, and I remember we're sharing the gospel with somebody. And, and if I'm remembering correctly, this large man walks by chanting, do not quote scripture. Large guy. I just remember being weirded out by the whole thing, right? I thought, now that is spiritual warfare. I mean, that, if the devil's anywhere, he's hanging out at night apparently in the French court and fortune reader. And what, what I have come to realize over the last 20 years is that Satan's also at work in the well-kept streets of Ballin Park, Winter Park, and what we call the city beautiful Orlando. And See, the, the enemy will be happy for you to be a slave to crystal meth or prescription pain medication. He's happy if you become homeless, and he's happy if you're materialistic and your home is a spiritual wreck. He attacks in the extraordinary and the ordinary, the visibly broken and the visibly well-kept. He just wants you away from God. Notice the word he says here in verse 12. He says, we wrestle. We wrestle, not with flesh and blood, but we do wrestle with these other things. And the idea here, this word, it conveys close hand-to-hand -hand combat. The spiritual battle, he's, he's letting us know, gets up close, it gets personal. It's not something way off. It gets up in your face, in your life, in your home. Hand-to-hand, face-to-face. Now, why do you think Paul would say, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood? Why would he, why would he not just say, we wrestle against spiritual forces but he, he makes a point to say we do not wrestle with flesh and blood. And I, could it be because our natural tendency is to focus on flesh and blood, our neighbors, humans around us? Could it be that one of Satan's lies is to get you focused on your grumpy neighbor and your difficult boss or your unreliable coworker, and to forget that there is a spiritual battle being waged? See, our neighbors are not the problem. They are the mission field. We're called to love our neighbor and to stand against the devil. We get confused about that sometimes, and we go and stand against the neighbor. But he says, no, 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 no. You don't wrestle with flesh and blood. People aren't the problem. People are the point. Our lives are under attack, and we have a very real enemy, but there is good news. There is good news. Number three, God has given me all I need to flourish spiritually. That's the third thing you need to get your mind and heart around this morning. God has given me, he's given you, he's given us all we need to flourish spiritually. He says in verse 11, you need to put on the armor of God. In verse 13, he says, take up the whole armor of God. That's the command of the text is that we, we put on God's armor. The Greek of verse 11 conveys urgency. In other words, put on the armor of God right now. 
Don't delay. Don't wait to a more convenient time. You need to always, all the time, have on this, what he calls, armor of God. God desires that you and I flourish spiritually. And so he has provided every resource we need in Christ for us to flourish spiritually in the midst of spiritual warfare. So he says, put on, take up. God's provided, but we've got to appropriate what God has given us into our lives if we're to have his strength. If you're going to rely on the strength of the Lord, not your own strength, then you're going to have to put on the armor of God. And this is not some little thing for VBS on a felt board. This is, man, this is like, this is your marriage we're talking about. This is your workplace. This is your, this is your mornings and your evenings we're talking about. This is the things you're wrestling with we're talking about. You and I, we need this armor. It's not just for the eight-year-old that we teach this to at such a small age. Sometimes these familiar passages like the armor of God, we kind of strip them of their power in our life and in our mind because we just, we think of that as something, especially if you grew up in church, that's something over here. It's not John 3, 16. We put it over there in a category. These verses are popular and familiar for a reason. They're really important. <laughs> They're really important for us to go back to. So he explains what the armor of God is down in verses 14 through 17. He says, stand therefore. Having fastened on, he says, the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, this armor that's listed here, we, before we think, well, Paul just made this stuff up. And, you know, this is all mostly from the book of Isaiah. This is Old Testament stuff. Where there it's referred to as the armor of the Messiah. So what is he saying? He's saying, listen, you take up the armor of Christ. It's in Christ. Everything that you need is found in Christ. It's putting on his armor that he provides us. And likely, as Paul's pinning this, he's in prison, very possibly looking at a Roman soldier as he thinks through these different pieces. He says the belt of truth, that word truth, aletheia, it can mean truth in doctrine, Truth and content, right, that we get from God's word. It can also mean to be sincere and truthful and faithful in our disposition. And so that is, we, we've got to approach matters of truth we find in God's word sincerely with authenticity and faithfulness. And, and as we familiarize ourselves with the truth of God's word and it works into our heart, we'll become increasingly faithful people, truthful people. As the well-known commentator Matthew Henry said, I know no religion without sincerity. Got to be sincere and honest in this approach to God. We can't expect to stand against the schemes of the enemy if we're not grounded in God's word, his truth, and approaching our walk with God in a sincere way. Listen, you can fake it here. You might can even fake it at the office. You might even fake it for a little while at home. But at the end of the day, if you're not sincerely and authentically going about your faith and approaching God's truth, you're going to be devoured by a roaming lion. We need the belt of truth. We need the, he says, the breastplate of righteousness. Uh, we know the breastplate, what? It protects the vital organs like the heart. And this is important because the heart is so important, and not just physically, it's important spiritually as well. And I believe this refers both, first of all, we, we studied in Romans that we are declared positionally righteous through faith in Christ. That God does this miracle that when you put your faith in Christ as a sinner and you turn from your sin and embrace what Christ did for you on the cross and the resurrection, 
Jesus has taken your sin. He gives you his righteousness and God declares you righteous, right? So there's that sense. And so here we need to live in light of that. We need to live like people who have been made righteous in God's eyes by living righteous, godly lives, aligning our lives with God's truth. Submitting every area of our life to the lordship of Christ. But he says, not only that, you you need shoes, right? Shoes are for foundation. It's for the grip. You you can't stand very well and and, and poor footing, especially in a war. So your shoes are going to be very important. He says, you need that. That is the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And sometimes we read that and we think, oh, I need to be ready to share the gospel. And that might be part of it, but I don't think that's the main point. See, it's about stability and firm footing in the battle. And it's because of the gospel, because of the gospel of peace, it's because of the gospel that we have peace with God. All the promises in the gospel are true for the believer. In in the gospel, we realize that God is for us and not against us. That we have peace with him. We are his children. God God loves us and he likes us and and he's for us and and he's working for our good. We, We We have shalom, we have peace with God through the gospel. And if you're going to stand against the schemes of the devil, then you're going to need a sure foundation, and that is the gospel. And the fact that through the gospel, through faith in the gospel, you are at peace with God. Because when the gospel is firm in our hearts and in our minds and on our lips, when we are ready, then then we will be ready for the spiritual attack. Because we've got to stand in the gospel. If you start thinking wrongly about your relationship with God, you're open to attack. You, you can't stand in God's strength if you don't think God loves you. If you think God no longer likes you. That he's not working for your good. You need to stand in the gospel of peace. But not only that, you need the shield of faith. The, the Roman shield he's pointing to here was about four foot by two and a half feet. It was, it was a large shield. And they would take these shields, and, and you may have heard this before, they would soak them in water. They were leather on the outside, and they would soak them in water because many times the enemies that they would fight, they would, they, would, they would light the end. It's like you see in the old movies, right? They would light the end of their arrows on their bow and arrow, and they would shoot these fiery darts, as he talks about Satan shooting. And so, and then when the fiery dart hits the leather, water-soaked shield and sticks in there, the flame goes out. And he says... Satan is shooting fiery darts. And what is used to extinguish those darts is faith. Now see, this is where Adam and Eve went wrong. They began to believe Satan's lie. They stopped trusting God. They stopped believing God had their best interest at heart. And then that fiery dart, the lie of the devil, sunk deep into their heart. So you got to believe God. If we could just understand that a big part of spiritual warfare every day is that we go looking for the weird stuff sometimes, right? You go, you go read some book or you see some message on YouTube and you, you just start looking for a demon behind every bush and all that kind of, and the main battle going on in your life today is simply this, will you believe God or not believe God? Will you trust God or not trust God? That's the big thing about your marriage and about parenting and about work and about your heart. The main war that's being fought since the very beginning is do you believe God? Do you trust God? Will you trust God with his heart, with your heart, with your life? Will you believe that he knows best? Will you do those things? Do you believe he's for you? Do you trust God? Do you believe God? Do you believe he's good? That's the biggest battle in spiritual warfare, I believe, that goes on in every believer's heart every day. 
Because most every sin begins with when we shrink back from that belief and the shield goes down and we are defenseless. And a myriad of fiery darts can come in there and hit us. He says the helmet of salvation. I don't want to forget about the helmet protecting our minds. Remember salvation in the Bible, past, present, future. We, we were saved the moment we placed our faith in Christ. We're being saved as we walk with Christ and growing spiritually. And one day we're going to finally be saved and we won't sin anymore. And he's saying, you need, to be, you need to have it right in your head that you're saved and that God's still at work in your life. You're being saved and that one day you're going to be saved. You, you, you need to have that right in your head. You need to have that helmet of salvation on. If you think God's going to give up on you, if you think you've done something that's made you a lost cause, if you're a child of God, you need to get the helmet back on. <laughs> we need to understand what God's doing in our life, that salvation is a process, and we're not there yet. And then he says we need to take up the sword of the Spirit. And he says the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And the Roman soldier used a, a kind of a, a short sword by sword standards. standards. It was for hand-to-hand -hand combat, for close battle. And the only offensive weapon given in all this, as has been said many times, is the sword. But the point is still defensive. So you may recall in the garden, Satan casts doubt on what? On, on, what? on God's word. The way Satan attacked Adam and Eve was to get them to think wrongly about what God has said. And so he began to cast out, did God really say? If you go back and read Genesis 3, that's, what Satan, that's how Satan comes about all this. He, did God really say? Is that really what God said? Is that really what God meant? He's just kind of coming around. Command's been laid down. It's pretty clear. You can eat every other tree. But hey, this tree, you can't eat it. It's going to be really bad if you do. He goes, did God really say that? And then he comes in and he says, you know, God just doesn't want you. He didn't want you to know what he knows. He's jealous. He's envious. He's selfish. That's really what Satan was getting at. He don't want you to, he don't want you to, uh, to know all the things he knows. That's what's really going on. And she says, well, if we, if we, and then Eve mishandles the word, and she says, if we, if we, if we taste it, or if we even touch it, he says, well, die. Well, first of all, he never said touch. Right? She kind of seems a little unclear about what God has said. And Satan says, you shall not surely die. And by the way, that's how the progression always works. It starts with doubting what God has said. Has God really said that with a spirit of doubt? And it usually leads to, nope, he didn't. And you can see it played out in theological circles all over the world since the beginning. We doubt God, we doubt his word, and then we reject his word. And if we mishandle the word of God, we mishandle the sword, that can leave us in trouble too. What did Jesus do when he's tempted? Remember the other scene? Jesus is in the garden, or, or excuse me, he's out in the desert, and he's being tempted at the beginning of his ministry by Satan, and every time Satan bring, comes to him with a temptation, Jesus fends him off with the word of God. He quotes scripture. He says, it is written, it is written, it is written. And where Adam and Eve doubted God's word and mishandled God's word, Jesus accurately and faithfully wields the sword. Sword of the Spirit. What would you call a soldier without a sword, right? Ineffective. Running around with armor but no sword. It'd be silly. And if we refuse to take up God's word, 
God's promises will be ineffective against Satan's attacks. Here's what happens. Like, we tend to think of the sword. We go, oh, it's offensive weapon. But this is a defensive picture, right? The picture all the way through is stand, stand, stand. Never says advance. It's stand, stand, stand. And so while we're given a sword, the picture is really defensive because we forget. We think of the sword as attack, but it's also a mode of defense. So here's the thing. Satan comes at me attacking me. You think about it just like a normal like sword fight or battle. The first line of defense is my sword. And if I don't have my sword or if I miss with my sword, then what's happened? I'm taking body blows. And I'm taking blows to the head. And if we can't handle the word of God... And we don't know the word of God. You're going to take body blow after body blow after body blow. And those get to you at some point. You need the word of God. That's why it's so important that you read your Bible for yourself. And not just a few minutes a week that I read it to you. This is why it's so important that you be in and plugged into a Bible teaching church. Not just one that says they believe the Bible. They all say they believe the Bible. Do they teach it? All those things are so important because this is the sword of the Spirit and it's the first line of defense against the enemy. And then in verse 18, he says this. Paul says this down in verse 18 of chapter 6. He says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. It's not coincidence that prayer here is listed with the helmet and the sword. If you read it in the flow of the text. Because being grounded in our salvation and, it, and handling the word of God are definitely matters of prayer. And ultimately, the placing of all the armor on is a matter of prayer. Prayer is not so much a part of the armor as the means to applying it. It's the realm in which much of the spiritual battle takes place. It's the way in which God strengthens his people with his strength. Prayer is key to all of this. It, 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 it casts a shadow over the entire passage. See, we tend to trivialize prayer. And that's the human tendency. We, it's kind of like I said earlier about things that get familiar to us. We tend to trivialize. But the Bible never does that with prayer. I love this quote from John Popper. It's on the screen for you. In his book, Desiring God, he says this, Prayer is a walkie-talkie for warfare, not a domestic intercom for increasing our conveniences. That's what Paul's telling us here, right? This big emphasis on prayer is in the middle of a passage on spiritual warfare. Prayer is serious business. Prayer is warfare. It's so serious that Paul says, pray at all times. Pray in the Spirit, yielded to the Holy Spirit. Pray with prayer and supplication. He's given different types of prayer there. He's saying, a variety of kind of prayers, a variety of times a day. You just need to always be unceasingly praying. And you need to be alert. You need to be engaged. You need to, you need to be knowing what to pray for and what to pray about. You need to be paying attention to the world around you because you need to be praying. Because you have an enemy that is praying in another sense on you. And he, he says, and not only that, pray for all the saints. It's a reminder that we're not in this war alone, that this takes place within the community of faith, that we're not in this together. We're not lone soldiers. We're a part of a bigger body, the church, and this attack is against all of us, and we're in this thing together. And God has given us everything we need to flourish spiritually. The final thing here, the final big takeaway is this. My goal and your goal, our goal in this war is to stand against, excuse me, stand in Christ's victory. 
My goal and your goal in this war is to stand in Christ's victory. He says in verse 11, you need to be able to stand. He says in verse 13, you need to be able to stand in the evil day. In other words, there might be certain days that are worse than others. There might be certain days that you're like, man, the temptation's stronger. The attack is stronger, right? You, You might remember when Jesus resisted the devil in the garden, the Bible says Satan left him till a more opportune time. He picks his moments. He says, having done everything you can to stand firm. All through the text, the goal is real simple. He says the goal is simply to stand. As scholar Harold Pointer notes, the one who stands is not pushed around, but firmly holds his or her position. In terms of warfare, it does not denote an offensive stance, but rather a defensive stance to hold one's ground. The idea is this. Jesus has won. He's won. He has, he, has, he has staked his claim. He has won his victory. And we don't have to go out and defeat the enemy. The enemy is defeated. We need only stand in the victory that Christ has won and not give an inch in our life. Don't believe me? Colossians 2.15, Paul says, he, talking about God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them in him. See that phrase, rulers and authorities? Does that look familiar? It's also in Ephesians 6, the ones that are warring against you. He tells us over in Colossians, Jesus has disarmed them. He's taking their guns away. (laughs) He's disarmed. He's put them to open shame. He did this at the cross. In the gospel, Jesus dying in our place and rising from the dead. Jesus has won a victory over sin, death, hell, and Satan and every demon in hell. They are defeated because Christ has defeated them. He didn't just defeat them. He humiliated them. And this reminds us that our focus in spiritual warfare is not the devil. It's not even defeating the devil. He's defeated. Our focus is living in light of what Christ has done. Our focus is the gospel. Our focus is living in light of the gospel. Let me ask you this morning. Believer, are you doing all you can to stand Where are you exposed? What are your areas of weakness? You need to know yourself because Satan's studying you. You need to study yourself enough to know, man, I'm weak here. I can't do this. I can't go there. That's not, not all that. I I need this. Uh, I function better here. All these sort of things. We need to know these things because there's a real spiritual battle. Are you doing all you can do to stand firm? If you were the enemy this morning, where would you attack you? Check your armor. Take it up. Stand firm. There is way too much at stake in this war for us to be passive. And if you don't know Christ today, if you've you've never received Jesus as Lord and Savior, That's step one. The Bible says that when we're apart from Christ, when we've, when we've never trusted him as Lord and Savior, when we're lost and in our sin and, and we've just never given our heart to Jesus, when that's never happened, the Bible says we're, we're, we're actually held captive by Satan. It says we're blinded by Satan. My point is this. The devil's at work in your life too. The enemy's working against you too. And he's working to keep you 
He don't want you to believe this gospel. And so you today, if you're not a believer, step one is simply this. Confess your sin to God, admit that you're a sinner, and look to Jesus in faith, believing that he died in your place and rose again, and that you can have life in him. Can we pray together? Let's pray.